if they're at that point where they're they're burnt out or they're going to do something else, they've lost focus on their business. Let me tell you why that's important. Virtually any business, entrepreneurial business out there has the ability to increase the value of their company significantly. I'm talking 50 or 100% by just making a few changes to their business, things that we teach. And that means they have to re-engage. Well, I'm excited to welcome into the show Scott Hallman. How are we doing, man? I'm doing great. How are you doing? Good, good. We uh, were reminiscing about some exciting stuff that you're uh, you're working on. But what I really enjoyed was, um, you know, those those moments of of failure as an entrepreneur that so many of us experience, and not really many people like to share and talk about those things, especially when you're going through it, right? Like when you have a little bit of distance, it's, you know, more in the rear view mirror, it's a little easier to talk about and reflect on. But, um, you know, those have always been some of my greatest learning lessons and kind of opportunities for growth. And so um, you've got some pretty epic ones that uh, not many people get to say they've experienced uh, in their life. So I'm excited to dig in with you today, brother. But um with that being said, you know, for, for those that don't know who Scott Hallman is, you know, when someone asks you who you are, what you do, what do you tell them? Yeah, I mean, basically, I'm, I'm one of you. I'm an entrepreneur who's, who's built successful businesses, been through the bumps and the bruises. And, and um, you know, and uh, I now, I'm now a, a business advisor, an entrepreneurial advisor to other businesses, you know, and I'm passionate about um, helping them to, A, avoid the bumps and the bruises and the mistakes and the blunders I've made. And then also help them to be able to uh, apply all this overwhelming amount of knowledge that's out there to their actual businesses, right? Because it's so easy to get caught up in, um, you know, your learning and your, the latest marketing thing and the latest success strategy you're supposed to apply. And, you know, quite honestly, it's, it's overwhelming. And so I see myself as somebody that, that helps them to integrate the things that, are, that work for their business and then find a way with the skills, the resources, the capital... Uh, the environment that they have to successfully implement those things to build and sustain the business. And I know we'll we'll be digging in and and talking about some of your areas of expertise that has, you know, gotten the attention of the likes of Tony Robbins and the Chet Holmes and the Jay Abrams and the, you know, big, big business builders um, and and coaches and mentors of the world and pulling you up on stage and wanting your wisdom and your experience to impart onto, you know, their communities, their audiences. Um, and I want to kind of go back to the beginning of your journey, but I'm curious, what, what do you think it was about you or is about you that has attracted those quality and, and tiered, you know, uh, leaders of success to, you know, want to get in partnership with, with you and, you know, have you a part of their communities? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I think it is, it's really about the fact that I've been there and I've done that. So I think that's really important. But I was one of the early uh, people to say, hey, all these ideas are great, but you know, how the hell do you implement them, right? Yeah. What, are the, what are the steps? And I think it's that, that realism and the ability to identify with, with common entrepreneurs. You mentioned the big names I've worked with, and I'm proud of that. But you know, I have a lot of work with thousands and thousands of businesses that nobody's ever heard of, probably on the podcast. And uh, and they're amazing people. They have amazing businesses and amazing lives. And you know, I have the ability to be able to bond and connect with them because I've you know, I've now coached companies in over 200 different industries. I don't care what it is, online, offline. 
Uh, we all share the same thing in common. I think with the people that you mentioned, it was they they taught the concepts, but nobody was teaching, okay, now you have the concepts. How do we go deeper? How do we have somebody actually leave the, the seminar, leave a training and say, I know the two or three or four things that I'm going to do that are going to ring the cash register. I think that's really what it's about. And that's what you ultimately are an expert in. Uh, and have proven in your own journey. So talk a little bit about your own journey of where did entrepreneurship start for you? Yeah, well, you know, my dad was an entrepreneur, um, but he was a popcorn entrepreneur, as I say, meaning that every time something looked like it was going to be successful, it was boring, and he went on to the next thing and just never really achieved what he'd like to achieve. So I I did grow up with you can do anything and, you know, um, but my parents got divorced when I was 13 years old and we had no money. And I started working full time at the boys club when I was 13 years old. And I always had a passion to to be an entrepreneur. I didn't know, even know what it meant, but you know, I wanted to work for myself. And I remember uh, I got into USC because I had a professor in junior college that took me under his wing and said, how would you like to go to USC? I laughed and said, you know, I don't have any money. He said, what if I could take care of it, and make it happen? And he did. It was uh, you know, impactful in my life. And, um, you know, I got to SC, and I'm going to now go into the business school. And it's, they're molding you to the fourth floor, southwest corner, office number 36, right? Specialized. Like, I don't do that. I wouldn't be an entrepreneur. And they go, well, we, there's an entrepreneur class or program at USC. And um, I ended up, to make the, sh- the story short, but I ended up staying in these entrepreneurial classes with a five-year waiting list. I went past ad drop. And one day the professor comes, he lays down a sheet and said, I added you last week or something, you know? And uh, so I guess I was an entrepreneur. It's now in the entrepreneur program, you know? Let's take a quick break and hear from today's show sponsor. Are you struggling to close deals? Cold outreach can be a slow and brutal process. And in many scenarios, it's just wasting the time of both the buyer and the seller, especially when business owners who are trying to find qualified buyers are using inaccurate and outdated data. But it doesn't have to be this way. With LinkedIn Sales Navigator, your organization can overcome these challenges by leveraging this amazing technology and platform that translates comprehensive, high-quality buyer data into real-time insights and sales. These deeper insights empower sales reps and teams to adopt the habits of top performers, which leads to much better outcomes like building bigger pipeline with real customers leading to higher win rates and conversions and of course larger deals and paydays all around we call this deep sales and linkedin has built the first deep sales platform with the next generation of linkedin sales navigator right now our millionaire mindcast family has an amazing opportunity to try linkedin sales navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com forward slash mindcast that's linkedin.com forward slash mindcast for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com forward slash Mindcast and get started. But it's a little embarrassing. So I, I, I got a job out of school and I was working. I would brag to everybody about how I'm going to one day build this business. And one day, you know, one of the guys at work was said, when? You know, when? And, uh, you know, uh, I went home that, that night and thought, I've been working on this concept. I developed this, this uh, business plan at USC. I walked in and, you know, meet me long after that and said, I'm leaving. And that was kind of Cortez's ship, right? 
did you even uh, did you finish school at SC or did you say I'm entrepreneur I'm I'm burning the boat? No, no, yeah, no. I, I finished. I had I had like two. I finished all the years. I had two classes that I still needed to do to get the final, you know, diploma. But yeah, I went through all the way through the program. Wow. And I, you, you glossed over something that I thought was very interesting. You know, so many people nowadays attribute their success, um, you know, a catalyst to their success or, or their growth journey of um, entrepreneur of entrepreneurship as, you know, having a right mentor, somebody that initially believed in them, saw something in them, you know, before maybe they even knew it or recognized it in themselves. You had somebody that actually paid for your schooling to go through SC? They didn't pay for my school. I get I kind of almost well up as you tell this story because, you know, if I were to think about the path of that not happening, I had joined the army before I went to junior college. I joined the army. I was young and, and um, I was on a delayed entry program. And all of a sudden I decided I wanted to go to college and, and um, they go, there's no way out. I go, there's got to be a way. I drove, I drove up to where I was going to be stationed. They said, there's no way out. You can't get out. And then finally, somebody told me that you can get out if you got a scholarship. So I walked into the junior college and I said, I need a scholarship. She said, what? She says, how much? I go, a dollar. I need a scholarship for a dollar. So I said, how much do I need? He said, even if it's a scholarship for a dollar. So I would have been on the path of being in the army or I wanted to be, a, I wanted to be a, a carpenter, right? That was my dream. They made big bucks. I was poor, right? And yet that, that what this professor did is, first of all, just say you go to SC and believing in me because I ended up getting straight A's where I didn't even know I was smart. And, um, and then just, he basically took care of, he was an alumni and he took care of putting me in a position to succeed and get a full ride scholarship and it was something I never, I never dreamed was possible. So I appreciate you bringing it up. It's interesting. I've thought about that in a while. Yeah. I mean, I just, I find it as being something I look back on, on many kind of inflection points in my own entrepreneurial journey. And it usually was, yes, I was always willing to walk through the door, but it was generally somebody who saw where I was trying to go and had the willingness and the belief in me to help me open the door so I could take that next step that I didn't necessarily think I had the ability to take at that time. And so I just find the beauty in, in so many people's success story. It always starts with somebody else generally believing in them before they believed in themselves and kind of giving them some breadcrumbs to follow along the path that they know they're going to mar- mar- march down, but, you know, helping them, you know, kind of get some clarity in where they should be going next. Yeah, that's awesome. So with your journey of starting the business plan, talk about, you know, going from, I got an idea, I got a plan to, okay, now we're talking about some real work here and, you know, bringing this to life and creating a real business, a real income, a real foundation of success. Well, it's interesting, you know, is that when I started my company, um, I had, when I was going to to college, I worked full time uh, and and went to college full time for a company that basically would obtain records, medical records for legal cases, basically. And when I would go into hospitals, I would see that they were doing this copying as well. And I inquired, I said, you know, do you guys, you know, why are you, why are you doing this yourself? And so from that, I realized that what I could do is I could actually do that for them. They hated doing it. And so, you know, I've literally outsourced the copying of medical records in one in every nine hospitals in the United States uh, long term. And that was the business. And so you take over. I didn't need much. I didn't need a lot of money. I couldn't get a loan from anybody if I needed it anyway. And um, it's a crazy story about how uh, 
there was no portable copy machines and I needed a portable copy machine. So I went and got an ambulance gurney. <laughs> the first desktop copy machines, which weighed like 200 pounds, a $900 station wagon. And we carted that thing around hospitals and that's what we did. It was, it was, it was crazy, right? And then we just took off. It was like one hospital. I said, if I ever get 10, it's great. And then I started hiring and I never had any experience doing this. And it was just, you know, it was just, it was growing like crazy. And that's when I created this whole concept that, that I'm known for around optimizing and maximizing where I had to maximize and optimize every dollar. I couldn't get a loan. We were growing like crazy. So cash flow was always an issue. So we began to systemize everything. You know, I'd read the book E-Myth and applied it to my business. Uh, and then we, you know, we scaled. We started off in in uh, the Bay Area, and then we moved to Sacramento, by the way, in your neck of the woods, which was uh, our first office. And then I took the big leap to go national to to Reno, <laughs> and then you know Chicago, and it kind of grew from there. And and we were all about systems. It, it, we had we had 800 employees, 680 of them were out at hospitals where they're, we couldn't monitor them, but they're copying confidential medical records, right? So the, the whole thing literally forced need to become systematic. It forced me in an early stage to document best processes and have and have a way to be able to audit results and you know things that are called KPIs and metrics now. We had those in place um to the nth degree back when you know the terms weren't even used. Talk a talk a little bit about that of I think for a lot of people they don't they know systems, right? You hear people, product, process, right? You hear these things in terms of how do you really scale and run a real business? It's you know these people and these seats in the org chart follow these systems and execute on their main roles and functions to produce X, right? And systems seem to be a very challenging thing for a lot of people, especially entrepreneurs who are sometimes not the best system creators, right? They're They're the ones. So talk a little bit about how, how did you go about you know, executing on creating SOPs and systems and, and what did your hiring process look like? How did you elevate your your own leadership lid to continue to evolve and grow with your business as the demands grew? It's great. And I really, again, it's not a necessity, quite honestly, it really is. So I'm out, I'm the one doing all the, we copied medical records. So we get a medical record request and would say, I need this information on Matt. We'd go and pull the documents out literally photocopy them and send them to them. That's what we did. So, you know, they had, there was a train process went through. So I was doing it all. I was, I was, you know, thought it was great at it because I'm, I'm the guy, right? And, uh, and now I'm doing X number, 17 charts an hour or something. I hired somebody and they're doing six. Well, I can't survive if you do six, right? So yeah. you have to monitor what you're doing. I have to monitor where you're getting hung up, right? So systems are about breaking down the activity or process into small steps or so that you can identify those things because by doing so, you could begin to identify, is this person slow because they're pulling the charts out of the library, so to speak, just taking them forever, they don't understand to do it? Or is that, are they slow because they're copying slowly? Are they slow because they can't uh, package the thing up and invoice it properly? So all these things came out of necessity. I'd love to tell you it was more than that, but that, that's what happened. So we began documenting how many charts an hour does all of the reps produce? How many pages do they produce because that affected what our billing was, right? So we would track that by rep across the country. I could have 680 reps. I knew I knew how many charts an hour they did, what their average billing was, you know, how many pages they copied. Um, and from that, we could we could top grade. You know, somebody who wasn't making the mark, we would replace them and we would top grade. And that's mm-hmm. what we, we ended up doing. So, you know, and again, I, I go back to survival because maybe that's what's needed for so many entrepreneurs to go, you know, 
you're comfortable, but you have to realize like right now, we have inflation, for example, right? Most businesses have never lived through inflation. I started my business in the worst recession since the Great Depression, double dipper, right? Now we've had, you know, maybe the Great Depression was worse. Um, it, we, we were in like double digit inflation and that's how I started. So I didn't have really mentor or coach to say this is probably not a good idea. But, you know, when you think about that, we think of what's coming right now for entrepreneurs is those that were comfortable and, and they can get away with just doing things okay, they have to have systems now. They have, because if you have the, if you have the data and you can track the data, now you can improve upon it. And if you can't do that, somebody else is, by the way, and you're not going to be around or your, your profitability is going to suffer like crazy, right? So it's really about looking right now, looking forward and saying, we're recession is here. I mean, inflation's here and it's here for a while, I believe. Recession is imminent. We're the longest non-recessionary time in the history of America. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, how are you going to prepare? You know, how are you going to prepare? And I think you need to have systems in place. And something I'll talk more about is that you need to be able to have a process in the system to optimize. So we kind of, what I heard there was, you know, as you're, you're scaling, right, it goes from the I do to then we do these things together to then you do these things, they do them, right? in terms of the system and, and the process in order to, you can't work more. Uh, you know, Scott can't go and work more hours, but he can succeed through more people, right? Yeah, in terms of, of scale. And so as you started to scale the company, um, and, and this is a, a question for the people that are in growth mode right now that are looking to scale, that are really looking to take their business to that next level, you know, what were some of the key things that really helped you beyond systems, not only scale the company, but, but you know, scale your time and, and your skills? And what did you really lean in on that, um, you know, you wish you would have maybe thought about or looked at sooner? Well, I think probably the main thing was training. I think one of the things that we did was we had extensive training early on to try to duplicate the results that I produced. And, and, and it's not just training, it's coming back and retraining, right? Yeah. Because I didn't have money to get the superstars. I didn't have money to hire the top talent. I had to take those who believed in me, you know, and, and didn't necessarily have the, the right education or skills and, and elevate them up. And so we had a whole mindset of we're always trying to elevate people up and that, you know, our goal was that we wanted to take the, the, the person at the entry, at entry level and have them rise up to the top. My, my most profitable by profitability, the margins office in the U.S. was actually Sacramento. And that gentleman and his wife, he was a, I call him a grease monkey, I guess that's what he called himself. He worked on the uh, ski lifts. Ah, yeah. You know, and uh, just learned through training. And, and we had an attitude of just constant improvement, constantly becoming better. And so one of the keys is you want to hire the right people, but sometimes you can't afford it. And right now, the right people are really tough to get and they're really, really expensive. So sometimes as an entrepreneur, you don't have that. And I always use the analogy of a football team. And, you know, somebody goes, oh, if I just had this person, if I just had this person. I said, but you don't. You know, this is the team you drafted. This is the team that you have. And your job is to make everybody better, right? That's the key. Your, your job is make everybody better. And if you do that, you'll take your C's and turn them into B's. you turn your B's into A's. Um, and, and that's just that it is, it creates a, a momentum in the company of excellence where everybody's constantly like, you know, I talk about optimization, but one of the things I'm proud of that we had in our company was that we invited people to, to 
uh, offer suggestions about how to improve. So even the line workers, if you will, the technicians who are out in the field, we're constantly submitting ways to be able to improve the process. And so I think by getting the people on board, allowing for them to be to be contributors, and then the ongoing training, I think is one of the most powerful things that we did. Um, that, and I believe that every business needs to do as well. I don't know if that answers your question, but... No, I mean, I think it totally does because, you know, at the end of the day, you, you said a keyword earlier that stood out to me, which is top grading your talent, right? And and if you've got strong core values, you've got strong culture, you've got a strong vision that everybody can see clearly and buy in and know what their role is and, you know, how they can participate in collectively helping achieve that goal, you know, consistently pouring into those people and, you know, giving them rhythm around knowing they're going to be growing and expected to uphold the standard, be at the bar, if not above the bar. It, like you said, it creates this culture of excellence. And I was just curious of how did you guys carry out that, you know, delivery of the vision of maintaining the culture of really kind of creating this environment where people were, you know, top grading themselves without it necessarily being you, the one who had to drive that for them every day. Yeah. So a couple of things there. It's really interesting. When I sold that company, I remember the private equity people saying, who spends 25 to 50% of their time doing what you do? It's a waste of time. You shouldn't be doing that as a CEO. And, you know, it was, I visited the hospitals all the time. I would walk into the, to the technicians and talk to them. And they're going, wow, you know, Scott's here. I would observe what they were doing. I would give them tips. Uh, everybody knew that if, if they, if I don't care what their background was, if they proved that they, they could scale, we were a scaling company. There were jobs opening all the time. So the, the people that were the technicians knew they could become a supervisor. They knew they could become a manager. They knew they ultimately could run their own regional office. And that's what happened yep. throughout, throughout the company. So I think that, that, that was one of the key things is that they saw that there was a trajectory and we, and we invested in that. The other thing, when I go back to the training is, you know, it took five weeks to take a technician, put them in the field, and they have like they're like the free to lay lay rep, right? They got to run around to all these different places, all these different hospitals, and they have to get their work done in a day. Mm-hmm. And if they don't get their work done in a day, then it's a problem. And so speed was there. So what we had, what we did is we invested in 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 training centers where you bring people in, they could, everybody could meet each other. And we would make sure they were battle ready before we sent them into the field. So those are just some of the things that we did to to create a culture, to to create a culture of success. And and again, inviting people to share their ideas, and then they would see that you know these things were put into place. I love it. What, what, I, haven't, I haven't been asked these questions in a long time, by the way. So I, I, you, it's it's great. It's a lot of fun. So talk a little bit about like looking back. What are some of the things that you were most proud of in your organization? Or what were some of the things that were the most fun for you as a CEO? You know, I think we all get wrapped up in this, you know, grind and hustle and P&Ls and balance sheets and, you know, projections and budgets and, and strategy is great. But talk about like, how did you, how did you continue to have fun in the hustle, have fun in all of the stress, have fun in the challenges that come along with being a CEO and not give up? Uh, you know, I think it is, I think it really comes back to the fact that um, it, it, it comes back to the fact that we were always growing, that I even felt the responsibility. I never laid anybody off in the company. I fired people, never laid anybody off because of lack of work. It was always, when you create a situation where you're, you're promising people they can grow in the company and you stop growing, 
Now you're not living up to your word. You're not living up to what you share with them. You're not living up to why people are there with you. So, you know, um, that was one. The other thing was all you needed was met some basic medical knowledge and a copy machine to compete against us, right? Mm-hmm. We created the industry. By the time I left, there were probably 150 competitors, all who looked and sounded just like us. So one of the things we did is we constantly innovated. So we started off providing this service and then when everybody started catching up to us, we just added this other element. We added this other element. So we so my fun, what kept me in the game was always finding a way to pick, to stay a step ahead of everybody else, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was it. The other thing you asked about what I was most proud about, you know, we had 500 hospitals, you know, one in every nine in the United States and over 50% of the hospitals in metropolitan America in a long-term contract. I lost eight hospitals. Uh, with all these competitors, I lost eight hospitals in eight years. Wow. And, um, you know, it was, it's, just, it's the pride thing of feeling like, wow, you know, you did it. And I remember, you know, we made the 500 list at number 59. And and I remember, you know, I, I never I never was satisfied. I grew up, you know, I think because like you grew up poor and they say when your father, you know, you when you're at that age, 12, 13, then you now have to sort of take over being the man of the house, so to speak. You know, you just try to overachieve and there is no place where you feel successful. And I remember that day when the magazine came out and I went and I put my hands on top of the dividers in the office, big old office out there. And I just smiled and felt this overwhelming pride for the first time in, you know, five or six years of running the business, you know? So, um, you know, I think it's, it's important for all of us entrepreneurs to, to take those moments and go, wow, you did it, you know? Yeah. You did it yeah. with the team, but you did it. Yeah, absolutely. And you talked about the sale, you know, shifting over to that a little bit. How, how did you get to a point where you knew it was time to sell? Yeah, it's a really good, it's a, it's a great learning lesson, I think, for everybody. It's something we teach in our big payday division where we help companies, I call it pre-prepare, pre-prepare to get their businesses ready for sale. And um, and I didn't, is the answer. The answer was, I'm, I'm a poor kid, we're growing this business, we're highly profitable, but there's no cash flow whatsoever. And, you know, along comes somebody who offers me a pile of money. I was fearful, if I were to be honest, scared that it would all, I wasn't good enough, that it would break down, that I I would fail, I would lose everything. And so, and understand at the time, I'm like 29 or 30 years old. And um, and, uh, so I sold the business. Uh, Again, didn't have a mentor. This is real important for all of you out there. And um, you know, I sold the business and, and, and got a big pile of money. And I drove home and I pulled in the garage and I broke down and cried for like 45 minutes. And I'm not kidding. And it wasn't tears of joy. It was, what did I just do? You know, I just gave up my baby. And now what am I going to do? I just had no plan. I was lost. Uh, and then, you know, from there, you know, what ends up happening is you don't have a plan before you sell your business. And, you know, you, you think I'm just going to go start another business and duplicate this. Well, that's hard to do. Yeah. So you start burning through money. You start burning through your money and you're getting the payments, you're burning through the money. And, and um, you know, all of a sudden I found myself going, you know, I need to create something new, but I'm the great Scott Holman. I'm the successful young entrepreneur, so I can't go to work for somebody. That would be ultimate failure, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so anyway, it was, uh, it's, it's a lesson I teach all of my clients to say, I want to sell. I say the number one thing you need, we teach seven value max drivers, how you increase the value of your company. But the number one most important one is mindset. 
Um, you know, you have, if you're an entrepreneur, you need to have the right mindset. I didn't have the right mindset. A, I wasn't ready to sell. B, my business wasn't ready to sell. Um, and the mindset is not just, hey, I'm ready to sell. Most entrepreneurs, Matt, when they go to sell, they're either burnout or they have another opportunity, right? If I, there's probably some of them that sell just because I want to get rich yeah. uh, or they sell out of fear like I did. And so, you know, if they're at that point where they're, they're burnt out or they're going to do something else, they've lost focus on their business. Let me tell you why that's important. Virtually any business, entrepreneurial business out there has the ability to increase the value of their company significantly. I'm talking 50 or 100% by just making a few changes to their business, things that we teach. And that means they have to re-engage. Think about this. You got to re-engage. You got to go work back in your business a bit, right? In order to be able to make these changes so you can, you know, you know, you you talk about, you know, creating wealth for entrepreneurs. Well, um, you know, I've listened to one of your other podcasts where somebody talked about the entrepreneur's wealth is in their business. Yeah. Sometimes it's all their wealth. Right. Right. And yet they, they're going to sell their business and walk away with a million dollars when they could have got $2 million. But, you know, it's, it's just crazy. Or, you know, they're not optimizing and maximizing. So they're, they're not able to take out money and diversify and invest in something else like real estate that you do, you know? So I'm going a bit on a tangent, but, you know, I think it's, an, it's important lessons for anybody that is looking to potentially sell their business that, that these, are, these are critical to make sure you have that right mindset. Are you interested in boosting your income by an extra $50,000 this year? If so, you're going to love what I've got in store for you. I am beyond excited to officially announce an incredible opportunity to join me in my exclusive mastermind, which will include myself and 25 other hand-selected investors who are actively pursuing commercial real estate in 2024 and want to be held accountable to making sure they buy their first or their next commercial real estate investment property that will net them a minimum of $50,000 a year. This mastermind group will not only teach you how to do that, how to find, how to analyze, how to structure and buy these types of commercial real estate investment properties, but you'll also have an opportunity to be a part of an intimate group of high achievers that are going to take your network and your resources to a whole nother level. But here's the catch. Like I mentioned before, this is exclusive. We're only selecting 25 ambitious individuals for our founding members group who are serious and ready to take that next step in their commercial real estate investing journey. So if you are ready to increase your passive income by at least $50,000 in the next year with commercial real estate investing, then this is your moment. These spaces are gonna fill up fast and trust me, this is the one and only time to be a founding member, which comes with some pretty special benefits. So head over to myfirst50k.com and submit your application now. Again, that's myfirst50k.com. You can head over there, check out the program, see everything that it entails, submit your application to join, and I can't wait to connect with you soon. Absolutely. And maybe we can touch on a couple more of those, um, you know, success uh, drivers to hyper growth. And I think anybody would want to know how to increase their business, you know, 50 to 100% year over year, whether they want to sell it or not. Where do you guys start when you're digging in on identifying how to do strategy-wise execution, planning, creating that type of growth? Yeah, so it's a really great question because we do it, I think, differently than, than other companies. You know, is um, 
I talk about profit optimization. You've heard me mention that two or three times. Really what that, that means is that you take anything you do and break it into steps. So if I talk about business growth, I'm going to say I generate leads this way, whether it's online, offline, it doesn't matter. And then I've got to, I've got to get a hold of these, you know, I have to get a hold of them, communicate to them, educate them about my product or service. I then have to, at some point, there's a sale that takes place, you know, whether or not it's online or offline. Um, and then I'm going, once I make that sale, I want to make sure I maximize the transactional value of that sale. I want to make sure they're happy. I want to make sure that they buy from me again. I want to make sure they buy other things from me again. I want to make sure they refer me, so on and so forth. Each of these that are measurable, we call the profit drivers. So simply by just breaking down and saying, how are you getting leads now? I don't care what it is, but how are you getting them now? And how are you, how are you, what process are you taking them through? You just literally write those things down. That's step one. So we do is we just do a simple little process. And a lot of times they don't know. They know we generate leads. Our salesperson goes and talks to them and they convert. No, 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 no. You're missing like five steps. You get a lead. Now you have to get a hold of the lead. Then you have to book that appointment. Then you have to make sure they show to the appointment. And now everything you said is true. And so we, we get them to break those down. And here's why. Once you identify those steps, I can now, we're just focused on three to 5% improvements in each area. You get 1,000 leads, we just want 1,050, right? It's small. You, you convert at, at, at 30 people, you want to convert 33 or 34 or 35. But if you stack those on top of one another, if you just have 10 profit drivers, I can show any business there's 50% increase in profitability. And the reason we start there, Matt, is thinking, why the hell would I go and invest in more marketing or other marketing thing when I don't, I don't optimize my process yet? My cost of acquisition is going to be through the roof. Um, you know, I'm not going to maximize the transaction value. Let's do that first because that allows me to go now invest intelligently in marketing, know what the results are going to be, and make sure I'm eking out literally every dollar of the transaction. And that's really important. The second thing that optimization does is process does of starting is many entrepreneurs say, I'm working 60, 70 hours a week. I go hire like the key person. I can't afford them. I said, yes, you can. Let me show you. you can optimize and maximize. Take that money and go hire the person you need. And now the whole thing begins to change because you create freedom if they want that or them to be able the, 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 the entrepreneur to be able to do something that they're best at in adding value. Some might say, we don't have the right technology. Optimize and maximize. Let's start there. And then we move on, right? Once we've done that, then we move on to the performance maximizer things. Now we move on to saying, can I invest even more in, in um, Facebook ads? Can I invest even more in radio or TV? Can I get even more aggressive? Can I expand the market that I'm, the, the size of the market I'm going to? Can we now test some other products or services that our clients or customers or patients likely would need? And that's the process that we go through, right? So it's a matter of going, first, let's just make sure we're solid in the basics. And by the way, profit optimization, as I talk, is easy. You're already doing it, right? If you already have a script and you're improving the script, it's free and it's not a lot of work. Figuring out some new marketing channel is hard. Yeah, right? And I could go on and on and on and the show would be over, but yeah. <laughs> well, we still got a little bit of time left, so... We can keep digging in on, and you know, you talked about some of the seven success drivers, the hyper growth, which I know is in your book. And um, guys, we'll be sure to link up, you know, anything that is discussed or any resources, websites, all that good stuff. 
Um, we'll have a link to the book in the show notes for Scott's episode at millionairemindcast.com. So be sure to check that out. Outside of mindset, what would you say if you were to have to pick one or two other, you know, I know they're all important because they made it into the book, but what would you say, you know, is your second or third most critical or important uh, success drivers for hyper growth in any organization that people should be spotlighting and leaning into? Yeah. So we talked about team already, so I won't dive into that one because that would be the next one. And the next one is what we call finance is, is the financial maximizer area. Okay. When people come to work with us and, and, and hire us to engage and work with them, they're successful. We only work with successful entrepreneurs. We don't work with turnarounds. And so they're successful. The reason I bring that up is we would therefore expect that every single one of them has a comprehensive set of finances. They get a P&L every month. They look at their balance sheet. They have these metrics in place we talked about, but getting the KPI reports. And, you know, of course, we don't need to teach any of them that. It is 95 out of 100 don't have it. If they, ha- if they get financial statements, here's the numbers. 10 companies. Remember, they're successful. Maybe there are seven of those that get regular financial statements, three don't get regular financial statements and haven't in a long time. Of the seven that get regular financial statements, maybe three or four of them, maybe three of them actually pay attention to them and look at them. I mean, this is, this is startling. And there's maybe one or two out of those 10 that understand what to do with what they're looking at. Right? So this, this, this financial competence is so important in a business because what ends up happening is, especially if you're a growth company, you're growing, you're feeling like you're doing really well. And all of a sudden, you know, your, your CPA says you're out of money, you know, or, or, you know, you are, you have ran up so much debt that you're, you're in deep trouble and you just don't have awareness of these things. Right. And so it's this slow, painful process that takes place and you don't have a view of that. And if you don't know where you've been in the past, it's pretty hard to predict where you're going to go in the future, mm-hmm. right? So having financials in place, and you know, I mean, you know, I I went through the entrepreneur program at USC, but I was a finance major, and you know, I didn't like, I didn't like that whole process. <laughs> you know, so I don't know too many people that like love love numbers, but when you yeah. understand how critical they are to success, yeah, you learn to love them, right? Or you you have to lean in and understand, you know the kind of mechanics of finance in order to be wealthy, unlock wealth, you know, sustain wealth, grow your wealth. Yep. What, what do some of your financial rhythms look like in terms of how do you keep your kind of financial pencil sharp, you know, and continuing to keep the priorities around finance, your wealth, you know, top of mind? And, and what does that kind of maintenance and routine look like for you? A long time ago, I drew a triangle and I said, you know, let's do the triangle. And I said, you know, I need to make enough money to pay my bills. And I called that income, right? But if I just make income and I spend my income, I'll slowly build up some form of a nest egg, but it's not enough. And, and I, like most all entrepreneurs, you start off living on 50000 a year and you make 100 and you live on 100 and you make 500 and you live on 500, right? Yep. So then the next part of the triangle is you got to be feeding the wealth. And, you know, and... So you have to be able to discipline yourself to be able to put money aside, which is is difficult for many people. You know, what I did is we created what I call the rainy day fund in my account. And I would take a certain percentage of the profits and I put them in this rainy day account. 
which is designed in case the economy ever shifted, et cetera. But that's how I bought my first house. It's how I, I you know, is a discipline to be able to, to make your investments. You have to have that wealth. You have your you have your revenue and then you have your your wealth that you're building over time. And then you know the third one was contribution. You know, how are you gonna what are you gonna do if you don't if you don't set aside money to contribute and make a difference, it just never really happens. And so you know what is that what does that look like for you to be able to uh, to build that third piece of the triangle, and you have to be doing it early. And by the way, I didn't always do this. When I was young, and I got my my first money out of my first business, I already shared with you. I burned. I didn't have a plan. I burned through a lot of the money. Um, I invested. I shared the story with you earlier. Invested in. I thought I did the Midas touch. So I I invested in uh, uh, real estate, building houses. Mark, Mark was on fire, and so it, the first one sold the foundation phase. Second one sold the foundation phase. And so I bought a raw land to build a subdivision. And um, I built the subdivision. The guy who was supposed to finish the roads, you know, uh, something happening went bankrupt and the market turned. And I remember at the lowest low, they won't approve the project because they can't find this wire that traces the, the lines of water underneath the roads. I'm down in the ditch at 11 o'clock at night with a light in the mud trying to find the wire. Now you talk about Mr. Stud Entrepreneur, Inc. 500 dude in the trench, right? And uh, it was a painful lesson because I you know, didn't follow these things. I took the money, I plopped it all here, I didn't diversify, I didn't do a lot of things I'm sure that you, know, you teach on your show. Um, I was over leveraged the whole nine yards and uh, my money was stuck in that project for almost a decade wow. before I sold it for half of what I had in it. Mm. Right. By the way, in the meantime, the stock market had done one of those things there, and so it was just this brutal failure. And you know the the uh, the uh, the golden touch, the Midas touch, just was was gone. And I mean, I remember, you know, it's yeah, you start feeling lucky that the first time you built your business, it was you were the imposter. It just mm. kind of wasn't really you. How did you going back to mindset? How did you fall back on? all of the development and you know work you've done on yourself in your mindset to be able to pick yourself back up from what was an extremely high peak of selling your business out, piles of cash, being in a trench, making a bad investment decision, you know, to then your next endeavor of success. Like what how did you bounce back from that? Cuz I think when I look back on my own, you know, success journey there have been you know, probably more failures than the the you know the milestones of success that people would identify. And I think it's important for people to realize, you know, when I look at some of the most successful entrepreneurs, I look at someone like you, Scott, these are people that have stamina. They they have grit. They have this, you know, ability that no matter how hard, no matter how scared, no matter how much doubt pours in, there's something that allows those people to fight for it and lean into it and, you know, push through it, then laying down, quitting, you know, shrinking in those moments. What, what did that look like for you? Well, first of all, I want to let you know, it wasn't an immediate bounce back. <laughs> you know, it was a pretty, pretty hard lesson. And, um, you know, I, I go back to, I think we all have the thermostat, you know, that example. It's like, I had a baseline. I had a baseline of success and a baseline of what I achieved. And you do, you either say, you you lose everything and just say, okay, I'll go back and get a job. Or you say, 
I can't live below the baseline. I can't, I, this, that's not acceptable. And I think when I go back to my parents getting divorced at 13 and me having to play the, the man of the house, so to speak, and, and always tried to, 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 you know, the kids in my neighborhood were all two or three years older than I was. I believe what that created was this, this passion to succeed and this, this that I can't get knocked. If I get knocked down, I got to get back up. If I get knocked down, I got to get back up. It's just innate in me. Um, and so I began, I took that, that meeting and then realized, that, by the way, if I kept going this way, all the money I got from my first company would be gone. Right. Mm-hmm. And I lived a pretty good lifestyle and didn't really want to give that up. And so I, I had to now go and, and reinvent myself. And so, um, it's kind of interesting. I, I, I went to a Jabraham uh, conference and um, it was like three days long and I took a million notes and I'm going to start a new business. Maybe I want to be a business coach. I don't know. I, I want to do something kind of cool, help businesses grow. I took all these notes and um, uh, I, the last day I started walking around. I say, man, what, what do you think? Oh, it's great. It's great because it stops great. Guys, he's mesmerizing and, and he's brilliant. And <laughs> How many hours a week you work? And how are you going to implement this? Do you know what to implement? And I just watched people go from this like shoulders up, you know, and they just you just watch this, right? They just they they realize that they don't have a game plan. Mm-hmm. That, wow, maybe this is it. Maybe I can give back that way. Maybe I can teach others how to do do this if I can put together a formula for how you actually implement things. So I set out to create a program called the Power of One. And my whole concept was, I guess I had it back then, if you could just apply the 12 most common things that entrepreneurs should be investing in that Jay talked about, that Jay Conrad Levinson from Guerrilla Marketing talked about, if you could implement those things one a month for 12 months, you'll increase your business 60 to 100%. And so I set out, I read all these books, pulled them all together. I remember I left and went to this cabin for four days and I laid these papers, papers, all out, all over the place, making notes. And I pulled everything together, what I thought were the best practices for those 12 things. And that's what I did. And I created this program. J. Abraham loved it. He endorsed it. And all of a sudden, I was, you know, I was kind of in business in my new career. And then Jay Abraham and I did a program called Four Star Coaching. It's in the early days. We're going to get people on these mass webinars. They're going to pay us four or $500 a month. We're going to give our scouts our pearls of wisdom twice a month. And we got 68 people. And Jay said, I don't want to do it. It's too small. I said, well, I'll do it. He said, good. We made a deal about the economics of it all. And I took them on. I thought, well, maybe it's a good idea. I'll convert them to coaching clients. So I converted them, like 68 clients to coaching clients, which is not advisable, by the way. And, um, and then I surveyed them. There were 48 or 49 different industries. And I started now applying my, power, uh, my, my program to them and realized, and this is a key distinction, that it didn't work out of the box exactly like I thought for everybody. See, it wasn't them knowing the strategies. There's plenty of those. It was knowing which strategies and how to apply them to their business. And I created a concept called the 50% rule, which said, if you could just apply and get 50%, believe me, you'll get there. You don't have to get it all because otherwise it's hard and they won't do it. And that's what launched me from selling, you know, taking the crash and burn in real estate and uh, and going into my next career and doing what I do today, amazing. Well, I know you have you know tons more content and value that people you know come to you for. That I'm sure many of our listeners are going to want to go. All right, what has Scott got for me? What else does he you know have out there? 
And between your book, your events, masterminds, coaching, all the stuff that you do, um, for those that want to engage with you more, learn more about you, where's the best place for them to find out more? Yeah, if you just go to scotthallman.com, so it's H-A-L-L-M-A-N.com and explore around there. Uh, I'm going to create a page. We'll create a page. I'll call it, I think let me write down here, scotthallman.com slash, that's kind of fun, the slash millionaire, right? We'll tie back in with you. There we go. And I'm going to provide you know, three resources, I think, that will really help people to take what I talked about today and, and take it to the next level and, and hopefully, you know, implement some of the things we've talked about today, not only in their business, but also in their personal life that applies there as well. It's all about making small incremental improvements uh, to become a better person, become a better leader, to become a better business. So final question for you, Scott. You know, you've built some massively successful businesses. You have built great wealth through those businesses. You have lost wealth through other uh, failures along the way. And then you've regained a lot of it. And, you know, you've had this journey of success, peaks and valleys, um, you know, wealth going up and down. Um, what have you learned about wealth? And, and, and how do you look at, you know, what being wealthy actually means to you being that you've seen and experienced it from many different spectrums? Well, if you don't do it properly, go quickly. I shared the story with you about when I was taking my IT consulting company public in 2000. We were worth nearly a billion dollars and watched it evaporate as the market decided to go the other way. So it can go away pretty quickly. And, um, you know, I think the the biggest lesson I've had, and I've made the mistakes, by the way, if we had more time, I could tell you all about those. But I think that one of the most important things is, is to keep what you have. You know, um, one of my clients is one of the leading high net, ultra high net worth uh, investment houses uh, and advisors. And, um, you know, those family offices, their focus is, yeah, I want to make money, but I don't want to lose money. So I think once you have the money and you put it aside, don't, you know, get a second equity or third equity on your house. Don't borrow against it, right? Keep it there and understand over time and, you know, it's going to grow. And Mm. and for years, you know, I didn't do that and uh, it was painful. And so it's one of the most valuable lessons because it can just go so quickly, right? It's just, you now want to just borrow from here and do this. We want to do a home equity loan and, and, and go do this and the market shifts and then you're in trouble. So um, I know it's maybe not glamorous, but I think that if you can keep what you have, you know, how you invest is up to you and there's lots of ways to do that. But, uh, you know, there's an eye on not, 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 um, you know, protecting the downside. Scott Hallman, been a pleasure hanging out with you today, man. Thanks for being on the show. Take care. Well, that wraps up this week's episode. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that interview. And if you did, all I ask is that you share it with somebody else who maybe needs to hear this today, or that could gain some value from something that was talked about or discussed in today's interview. You just never know one piece of information, a conversation, a tool, a resource can completely transform and change the trajectory of someone's life or their business. So if you get any kind of value or you want to support the show, all we ask is that you help us organically get this in front of more people. Also, for those of you who are really looking to accelerate your wealth building journey and unlock more financial freedom, get more time back and just level up your life, your business, your finances, be sure to head over to therichlifeacademy.com to check out all the amazing products and resources that we offer to our Millionaire Mindcast family, whether that's one-on-one coaching with me, courses from our guests, all kinds of free content, downloads, checklists, upcoming event info, and how you can connect with us live, in person, all kinds of great valuable tools. You can get that over at therichlifeacademy.com. Last but not least, 
I always want to know, who do you guys want to hear me interview next? Let me know. Shoot me a text at 844-447-1555. With that being said, until next time, keep investing in yourself and your wealth on your March to a million and beyond. Cheers, my friend.